Praise the Lord. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and uh, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 14. Matthew 18, 1 through 14. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. says in verse 1 of the Word of God, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continue to see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and if one of them has gone astray, does not he uh, leave the ninety-nine on the mountains? and go and search for the one that is straying. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have, gone, uh, have not gone astray. So it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, and thank you that... Um, it's a very well-known text in our, in our minds. Thank you that um, uh, we have this story, this um, story that we can look upon and, and see that you want none to perish. Father, I pray now that um, the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds so that we could understand this text, maybe in a fresh way, in a way that we can apply it to our lives so that we're just not listening to a story, but we're putting it into practice. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I don't know if you have read the, the Wing Feather Saga. It's a great uh, book for kids and youth. Um, there's a moment in it where Tink, he's the high king of any era. Uh, he's, he's a child. Uh, his nagman, Nameless, had come and, and destroyed any era. And 
uh, Tink and his mom and his two other siblings, they had to leave and they were hiding. And um, in this hiding from Nag the Nameless, because he was searching for them, uh, he wanted to get rid of everything that the maker had, had made. Anything that the maker had developed, he wanted to change it. And uh, he had found these old ancient stones, and these ancient stones that if you sang to these ancient stones, they would, they would uh, change you so that you could not be what the maker wanted you to be, but you could be this new thing. And uh, many times what he would do is he would uh, have, a, have a person with an animal, and that person would be melded together with that animal, and they would be changed. And Tink was tired of running. He, he, he got to a point where he was just so tired of running from Nag the Nameless, trying to stay alive, that in, in a moment of desperation, he decided to sing the, the ancient song. And um, there was a, a wolf there, and he got transformed into a wolf. He, he realized later on that he had uh, betrayed his, his maker. His maker had made him a certain way as a little boy, but now yeah, he had betrayed that, and now he was what they called in the book a fang. Part uh, man, part, part boy, part wolf. I mean, he, he looked like a little boy, but uh, he had a snout like a, like a dog and ears sticking up. Uh, the problem came when they went to the Green Hollows. They, they went to the Green Hollows because uh, the way they described the Green Hollows is this kind of island place where uh, they're almost like Vikings. I mean, big old men, long beards, and uh, just very strong. And they went to the Green Hollows to try to find safety, but the people of the Green Hollows just couldn't get over the fact that there was this little boy that had betrayed his maker. He had sung the song, and he had betrayed the maker, and they just couldn't live with the monster in the Green Hollows. And it caused a problem. Now, Tink, he had realized he had made the mistake. He, he had realized that he had betrayed, and, and he was apologetic for it, but the community just could not really accept him. They wanted him gone. It, it's, it's interesting when people fail and how the community deals with that. Uh, when someone fails in, in the church, what, what do we want to do with them? Well, there's a very nice church down the street. Why don't you uh, find a place there, you know? Uh, what do we do with people that fail within us? Well, we might act like the people of the Green Hollows and try to cast people out. What we find in chapter 18 and chapter 19 is we're dealing with this aspect of community. In chapter 5, we see the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount and, and he's talking about the blessed ones. And it's on an individual level. Uh, how does a person become a blessed one? How is it that a person ends up being one of these who is blessed? And it, and it goes through, Jesus starts talking about how they're peacemakers and goes through all the different characteristics, but it's very individualistic. In chapter 18 and 19, we're dealing not with the individual, but we're dealing with the community, with the, the group of blessed people together. And what does that look like to have a group of blessed people ministering and living together? What does that look like practically? Well, it's been a struggle, to, to, to say the least. We look at church history, and it's just been a struggle. And part of that struggle, if we broaden the context and we look at church history, if we broaden it, we, we can go over to John chapter 17. 
Let's go to John chapter 17 really quickly. We know that this is the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he is uh, giving some information about his relationship with the Father, uh, his relationship with the disciples, and his relationship with those who will come afterward. And there are certain things that he wants out of this type of community, this community that will exist even after he's gone. And, and in here we see this, this struggle. The first part of this struggle we see in verse 17. Verse 17 through verse 19, it says, Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, and they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So on one part, uh, you have this idea of a purity, you have a, this idea of a truth, you have this idea of, of a teaching of his word, whereby there is a truth, there is a purity that people will believe that they have. On the other side of the spectrum, you have something a little bit different. And we can see that in verses 20 through 24. It says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through uh, their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that, they, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given, to, given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you notice, there was a word that kept on being repeated, which is one, uh, to be one, to have this unity. So on one side of the spectrum, uh, this tension that has been for the last 2,000 years, the idea of, of truth, the idea of a purity, of truth, a sanctifying truth uh, that's different, distinct from the world. And then on the other side, you have this idea of, of a unity, uh, being together. And of course, this has been in conflict. And you look at church history and you've seen this conflict of uh, how do you balance these two aspects? Uh, for a while, there was the church and the church was very adamant on, on truth. And it said, we have the truth. And anyone who believes something different than this believes in something that's not true. And they held very strongly that this was the truth. Here recently, uh, truth is kind of very subjective. Like, it, it, it's a bit arrogant to say that you have truth, isn't it? I mean, it, to say that you know truth. And so over on this side now, people more in modern times say, oh, I don't know if we can really know truth, truth, truth. I mean, I can have my truth, you can have your truth, you can have your truth, you can have your truth. And, and we can somehow just kind of believe in something, what exactly it is. I, let's not define it. Let's just believe. And, and there's this aspect of people, let's just be together and hold hands and, and, and sway. I don't know what the swaying does, but swaying does something. So th this tension is built where you have unity and truth, truth and unity. 
And, and we struggle with this. How, how much are we willing to, to give on this side? I'm, I'm quite flexible. Uh, this one guy said that he was saved through grace by faith, and I just I chuckled inwardly. I said, no, you're saved by grace through faith, but I just let it slide. See how flexible I am? Uh, I just let it slide. I didn't even correct them. I just say, bless your heart. Uh, unity and, and truth. How, how do we merge those two together? It's very difficult to, to have these two aspects in, in one. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 18, when we go back to Matthew 18, we see this aspect of living in community. How is this done? And Jesus starts to explain how we're going to, how we're going to be able to do this. How is it that we're going to be able to live in community? What we're going to see in this text is that great Christians must live humbly by removing all obstacles from their life. Great Christians must live humbly by removing all obstacles from their life. The first obstacle that we're going to see in this text that's presented is the obstacle of pride. And it's something that has to be removed. We see in verse 1, it says that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So this is, this is going to be great. It's not Jesus now approaching the disciples. It's not Jesus having to go look for them and bring them along, but rather the disciples now are taking the initiative and they're going to uh, go and get close to Jesus. And as you look at this question, what they're going to ask them is they're interested in the kingdom of heaven. This is just fabulous. This is wonderful that they're interested in the kingdom of heaven. Most people will, will talk about earthly things all day long. The weather, the sky, the clouds, uh, stock markets, etc., etc., etc. They'll talk about this type of stuff all day long. Even spiritual Christians, to try to get a spiritual conversation going with them, it's very hard. We like to keep things just so superficial, just right here horizontally. Here the disciples are interested in the kingdom of heaven. This is a spiritual conversation. This is great. This is some type of progress that is happening in the disciples, right? Well... When we start looking at the question that they're asking, it's something else is going on. Because they're interested in who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're interested in. I know that God the Father has first place and Son second place and the Spirit third. But how do you get to number four? How do you have fourth place? I, I want to know this. What, what do I have to do? How many badges, Awana badges, do I have to collect to be able to get fourth place up there in heaven? That's what they're asking. What can they do to be able to get up there at fourth place? And uh, we see Jesus' response to them. He said, uh, and he called a child to himself and set him before them. The difficulty of this passage is that um, we might be tempted to think of a modern child a modern child in our context. Uh, you, you see these, uh, you see these uh, kids and, and how they interact with their, their parents, and they're like, Howard, you're annoying. And it's the kid telling the parent, you know, naming them by, get out, I'm trying to have my time alone or whatever. And it's like, not even paying the mortgage of the house, and he's telling us, you know, we have this image of, of kids now, and, and that's not what's going on here. So don't, don't picture that. 
Don't picture that kid that's calling the parents by the first name and so forth. Uh, Picture it in the ancient context. In the ancient context, uh, children were, were basically free slaves. A slave you had to go pay, but a child, they, they had no privileges other than having that name. And eventually they will inherit things, but, but basically they have no, no rights. And in the, the Roman society, the, the father had complete authority. If he wanted to kill the son, he could kill it. No, no problem. This is a person who is doing what the parents don't want to do. Cleaning places where the parents don't want to clean it. In a society with no running water, you get the picture. Here, it's not this prideful place, but rather it's a very humble place to be. And he says that he brings this child and puts it in the middle of them. And who's the them? Humanly speaking, these are adults. These are small business owners. These are people who have succeeded in life. These are people who have children of their own. These are, these are adults that make decisions. Furthermore, if you go into the spiritual aspect, these are, these are individuals who have left everything and, and gone after Christ. I mean, how higher do you get? I mean, these guys gave up everything and are going after Christ. They are living for him. They're listening to his teaching. They're ministering alongside of him. Can you imagine the shock value to find a child in their midst? You're like, what is he going to say about this child? That's when Jesus brings in, he says, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted. It's a, it's a conditional uh, sentence. Unless this happens, unless you are converted and become like a child, then you will not enter to the kingdom of heaven. It's a conditional sentence that, um, that has a possibility of happening, but it's very unlikely. It's very unlikely. Because the, the truth of the matter is, nobody wants to humble themselves like a kid. No one wants to stoop down that low. Especially if they have worked so hard to get up to an elevated position. You know how many years of school I have? You know how many hours I've worked? How I've sacrificed? How I give? And now you're telling me I've got to go be a kid? Are you kidding me? He presents a conditional sentence that is possible to happen, but it's very unlikely. And the truth is, we know experientially that it is very unlikely. It's, e- it's easier for a child to come accept Christ as their Savior than an adult. It's very hard for an adult to stoop themselves this low. And he says, whoever, verse 4, then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one, uh, such child in my name, re- uh, receives me. So it's not only just uh, it's not just only humbling yourself, but it's also humbling yourself and being involved, uh, treating children in a correct way, uh, receiving them a- a- as a person, as who they are. You, you can tell a lot of ca- a lot about a person's character for how they treat children, right? Uh, you, you see, it, when, it, when it gives the narrative of Saul, Saul is said to be a whole uh, head and shoulders above the tallest person in Israel. You, you remember that? I mean, he's just up there. And, and the guy must have been strong because you, you see the armor that they try to place on David, 
and it's a massive amount of armor. So he's not only just tall, because uh, you know you've seen these tall, very skinny guys, but this is a tall, strong guy. But at the moment when Goliath comes out and starts to threaten Israel, what is Saul doing? Well, Saul's getting his armor on and getting ready to fight, right? No, he's hiding. He's scared like everybody else. Then comes David, kills Goliath. Now, we know that David is a little bit shorter than, than Saul, at least from the fact that Saul is a whole head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. David is part of Israel, therefore he's taller than David, right? Uh, but we get this feeling that maybe he, he's maybe a little bit shorter, and uh, there's an opportunity on two different occasions for Saul to grab a, a spear and throw it at David. You remember the story? He missed both times. But there's something very interesting in the character of Saul that the text reveals. That here's a man who's not willing to address a person that's bigger than him, but he is willing to take advantage of those who are smaller. It shows a lot of character how you treat those who are smaller. And he says that those who receive them is receiving him. Now, as we look at this, removing the obstacle of pride, uh, there's two points that I think is, is very important to note in this. The first is that the, the pride of life, the, it's very hard to get over the pride of life. It's extremely hard. See, uh, pride, pride makes me think that I'm better than other people. Uh, pride makes me think that I work harder than everybody else. Furthermore, pride makes me think that while I do sin, it's definitely not as bad as your sin. And you guys are terrible. But my, mine isn't that bad. And pride blinds me because I don't see my condition. I think I work harder. I think I'm better. And I think that my sin isn't as, as bad as your sin. It's very hard to get past pride because it just blinds us more and more. And it requires one to come humbly before God and ask Him to show what's in your heart. The other thing is that pride destroys. Remember last week I was talking about the paradox of the Christian life, where life comes through death. It's like you plant a seed, and unless that seed goes into the ground and dies, it's not going to bear fruit. It's not going to bear a tree. It's not going to produce anything unless it dies. And that's just like in the Christian life, that unless you die, there is no life. And if you try to live to save your life, you'll lose it. It's also true with pride. That if you try to be prideful, you won't have a life. It's only through humility. How, how do you come to Christ? With pride? No one comes to God with, with pride. No, no one says, I've done my part. I have something to add. No. You either come humbly or you don't come at all. He doesn't say, come all you pride. Prideful, no. It's a paradox that if you want life, you have to come humbly. You say, but look at all that I've done. God says it's filthy rags. It doesn't sanctify, it doesn't save you in one little bit. You know, from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the, the six things that the Lord hates, and the first is haughty eyes, and that's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, not H-O-T-Y. Haughty eyes. Pridefulness in your life. He hates it. 
So as we remove this pride, another obstacle that we have to remove is, is sin in our life. And this is not only just sin in us committing, but sin also where we're involving the community, where we're involving those of, of faith, where we're encouraging others to sin with us. And we see this uh, in verses 6 to 11. In verses 6 to 11, it says, um, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. It would be a better situation. He presents a, a, a situation which, which would be more beneficial for a person. And the option is kind of crazy. I mean, he's not talking about just a little millstone. He's talking about a, a big millstone, one that a donkey has to move around to, to grind up uh, wheat and so forth. He's talking about this huge, massive stone that, that weighs a ton. And to have that tied around your neck and, and you be thrown into the depths of the sea, that that is a better situation than to be involved in causing one of these little ones uh, to stumble. And that word for stumble is to cause them to sin. Now, here we have to make an interpretive decision. A lot will take that the little ones here has to do solely with the children that was mentioned uh, in, the verses, in the previous verses. But chapter 18 presents a, an aspect of community, because we're going to see later on that at some point you can excommunicate, you can push somebody out of the church. So the, the context is, is, is broader than just little kids or, or children. I think a better interpretation is to not only hold that he's talking about children, but he's also talking about the community of faith, of how they're living together. And so he's saying to cause another person to, to stumble, to cause them to sin, it's better to do this, to, to die drowned, than to be doing, to causing other people to sin. Uh, I've, I've never drowned. <laughs> I've never died drowning either, uh, in case you were wondering. But that, that seems just a terrible way to die. It, it seems it seems horrific way to die, and yet Jesus says this is a better scenario for that person than to cause other people to stumble, cause others to, to, to sin. And then he says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come because we live in this world of, of sin. We live in a world that the God of this age entices people to sin, but he says, woe uh, to that man through whom this stumbling block comes. And now he gives this radical thing this, to do, and it says, uh, if, which is our, our conditional sentences, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, then... Cut it off. And he says that it's better to enter life crippled than with two hands or two feet. And he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin, better to pluck it out, because it's better to go in with one eye than with two eyes. Now, do we believe that? Well, you we might say, theoretically, yes, I, I believe that. But how do we practice this in our lives? Especially since all of you here I see with two eyes and two hands and two feet. So on one aspect, we have made an interpretive decision to say, this can't possibly mean that I'm supposed to do that. 
And I'm already assuming that you're not living a life that is possible to be not caused to stumble. So I, I do apologize for that. But in one sense, we all struggle with this. So how do we deal with this? In which way do we uh, do this? Well, we have to stop turning people away from God. We can stop turning people away from God by, one, uh, not teaching people bad things. So uh, stop turning people away from God can be done both actively and passively. Actively is how we are actively engaging with people, telling them, do this, do that. It's unfortunate uh, that our church has to give a sexual abuse awareness class. Praise the Lord for all those in the children ministry that have been watching those videos and been taking the test. Uh, that's a big praise that we are doing that. But there are some people who actively do that, and we have to actively prepare for them. One of the aspects of, of a person that wants to sexually abuse a kid is that they look to separate them from the rest of the, of the kids. They, they try to separate them from different people. It's part of their grooming process that they try to find alone time. They try to find them, uh, show themselves as being somebody who is very kind, helpful, and trustworthy. And, and in that, finding being trustworthy and helpful and kind, they try to separate people. So, and, and now I'm just giving you what everybody, I'm just reducing it down to a sentence. You see somebody that's saying, hey, help me, and you, they keep on isolating this person all by themselves. You say, hey, let me go with you. <laughs> uh, and it kind of stops. But there's some people who actively are engaged in this. And that's a shame. There's another way, though, that is also done, and, and that's passively, and that's through how we model. So I say with my mouth that, um, oh, I love the Lord. But then my actions show something different. I say with my mouth that, boy, it's important to go to church. But then Super Bowl rolls around, and... Uh, it's not so important today. I mean, there's all the other weeks, you know. See, with my mouth, I say one thing, but with my actions, I do something else. With my mouth, I say that I love the Lord, but with my actions, I say I love my grandkids. And if they need me, I'm dropping everything for them. Somehow, sometimes passively, we teach a lot louder than what we teach with our mouths. And we need to stop turning people away from God. Uh, Stopping sin is going to hurt. And there's no way around that. Anybody that tries to sell you that stopping sin is, is going to be peaceful and loving and kind and great and fantastic, they're selling you something. To stop sinning, it, it requires something radical in your life and it's going to be painful. You have urges. You, your, your mouth gets dry and you just need a drink of something. You, you, you need to go look at something. You need to go somewhere. And, and to stop that behavior, it takes something radical in your life to do it, and it's painful. You say, I, but I want to. I've gotten this little bit of information. I want to just share this prayer request with this person. And it's painful to stay quiet. Dealing with sin is hurtful, but it's worth it. Now, we know that he's not talking literally about cutting off hands and feet and so forth. Because we know from Matthew chapter 15, verses 11 through 20, Matthew 15, 20, uh, 15, 11 through 20, there's a situation where the disciples have eaten something and um, the, the Pharisees are accusing them of being defiled. And Jesus goes into this thing that uh, our acts of defilement don't come through what we eat, but comes out of the heart. And really, the thing with the hand and the foot and the eye 
is a product of whatever's going in the person's heart. They do what they do because they want what they want. Why do we do things? Because that's what we want to do. Our heart is inclined towards sin. And stopping your heart from doing its desires is painful. And most of us say it's not worth it. Holiness is just not worth it. And we'll keep on and keep on sinning. So we have to remove the sin in our life. And the last thing that we need to remove is the obstacle of our wandering heart. The obstacle of our wandering heart. I, I don't know what image you see when you look at the parable. Here's this, uh, here's this group of sheep, a hundred sheep. They're going up the mountain because he says that he leaves them on the mountain and he goes down to look for the sheep. So we're talking about sometime in summertime when the, the grass... Uh, fields in the valley have dried up and so the shepherd takes him up the mountain where it's cooler he's taking him up there and he realizes that one is not with him he, he's not there and the word that it uses that it's gone astray can imply either that someone has lured it away or its own wandering heart has gone away it, both interpretations are allowed in that word that says that it's gone astray and, and um, it's gone astray and what does he do well, the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes down. Now, what's the image you have in your mind at this point? For some, they have this kind of white guy with kind of long hair and a beard, and, and, and the sheep is, was, is really just one of those little lambs, and he picks it up, and it's dark outside, and maybe lightning, and, and he's holding it so tenderly. And, and as you see this image, your eyes start to sweat a little bit, and you have to try to dry them. Because that's the image that sometimes we get. I don't know if you remember seeing that video on YouTube of, uh, it was, I think, in Brazil. It was this old, nasty sheep. It was about this big. And it was going around headbutting people at the, at the bus stop. Did you guys see that video? It went around a whole bunch. You can Google uh, sheep headbutting people at a bus stop. And it's just headbutting people. And usually, that's not the image of a sheep that we see, right? We think of the little lamb, and it's being carried back. by. But we're that ugly sheep headbutting people. That's the one that's gone wandering. Now, I don't want to ruin this for you, and I know we're about to run out of time. But verses 12 and 13 are both conditional sentences. In verse 13, it's very important to understand that it says, if it turns out that he finds it, which conditional sentences implies that sometimes it doesn't happen. You're like, whoa! No, 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 God is, God is omniscient. God is all-powerful. What do you mean he doesn't find it? Because sometimes people harden their hearts and they keep on wondering. That even though he gives opportunity to repent and to turn to God, sometimes people's heart keeps on getting harder and harder, and they reject, and they reject, and they say, no! And sometimes we interpret this as, I can go live my life however I want, because I know at some point in time, Jesus is going to come and grab me up, and just bring me back, so I can live my life for myself. But that's not what the verse says. It's a conditional, which means that it doesn't always happen that way. Because some people wonder and they keep on wondering. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm saying that that person was never saved. Oh, they gave a little prayer at some time. Maybe they fell out a card. But there's no evidence of life in them. No fruit. Can you imagine how absurd it would be 
to have a, a corpse in your house for months, for years, and say, I think this year he'll start breathing. No one would do that. Yet many times we look at Christians and we see no evidence of fruit in their life and we say, maybe this will be the year. It's a conditional. That means that sometimes some don't return because they were never part. Would you please bow your heads with me? The greatest Christians are those who come humbly because there's no other way. And they have to remove obstacles from their life. The obstacle of pride, the obstacle of sin, and the obstacle of a wondering heart. Father, I pray now as we look at this text and we consider it for our own lives, Father, there might be some here that never have trusted Christ as their Savior. They've never put their faith in what Christ did on the cross, and I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here that maybe we have been taking advantage of your grace. Maybe we have been wandering far from you, thinking that at some point you'll come and grab us and just snatch us back and we won't ever have the desire to sin anymore. Father, show us that we need to radically deal with sin. We need to turn to you and stop wandering away. In Jesus' name I pray.